0: <laughs> yeah. oh, uh, Thank you so much for fitting in at short notice. Uh, so I decided that I would use the opportunity. I, I think this might be a misguided thing, but uh, we'll, we'll see whether it works. I'm going to use the opportunity of standing in front of these people, who you are, uh, that uh, to tell you about two systems. One of which will be in, uh, our extensions, uh, well, my extensions. Uh, to use mathematical modeling to understand some of the really interesting questions that Mimi brought up about and multicellularity. And the second system is going to be about a more sophisticated kind of uh, multicellularity, which is ubiquitous in the fungal kingdom, very, very fascinating, and I think very, very understudied, at least by people with quantum events, at least by physicists and applied mathematicians. Can you hear me, by the way? I'm not very good at projecting, so you have to hold if there's a problem. OK. So uh, the part one of the talk, just as, just as I uh, said, is going to be picking up uh, where Mimi left off, uh, using mathematical modeling to try and understand uh, the phenomenology of co multicellularity. And just to recap, and it's uh, highly likely that most of the people who are interested in caranoflagellate multicellularity were in Mimi's talk this morning, but just, uh, just to recap, and just in case you weren't, uh, we are interested in caranoflagellates because they are nearest, uh, so we are here in the metazoa, and the caranoflagellates are the nearest sister clade of the metazoa, which is not itself uh, thought to be a multicellular clade. So, uh, at least it wasn't thought to be a multicellular clade. And then uh, I, I don't know whether it was Nicole who discovered this, but it's Nicole. He's certainly Nicole King at UC Berkeley. He's certainly taken this much farther than anyone else has. Um, rather more recently, it was discovered that the chironomidflies actually have a very nuanced and sophisticated life cycle, which includes multicellular phase, uh, multicellular phase, or something that we would at least, you know, eyeball it and call a multicellular phase. So. Uh, the chloroanoflagelates, just as Mimi said, uh, have one life phase, which is the sort of planktonic phase, uh, where they just sort of swim freely. Uh, and uh, Mimi talked about how they feed while swimming, uh, using this flagella to drive a feeding flow, which uh, pushes water around or possibly through the villi. Uh, but also, uh, the, there's, a fa- there's a second phase. Uh, if you keep the cells in a sustained log phase growth, so if you keep the cells in conditions uh, where they, uh, they're not nutrient-limited, or overcrowded, uh, they will move from they will transition from being single celled to forming something that uh, I'm going to call primitive, because I'm not really a biologist and I can use terms that biologists regard as pejorative, uh, just to, in in a very qualitative way. So they have a, a primitive multicellular form, uh, and this primitive multicellular form takes one of two different morphs. And one of the morphs, uh, they the multicellular form consists of long chains of cells. So these long filaments of cells. Then uh, there's a second morph, and this is the one that Mili emphasized in her talk this morning, which is if you also add uh, this bacterium, Algoophagus machophonesis, uh, I did my best <laughs> i 'm never going to say the name of the bacterium again. Uh, instead of forming this morph, this chain like morph, they make compact rosette like colonies and that's the name for uh, and that 's from these colonies this species acquired its name, which is uh rosetta and so <coughs> just question?
1: Oh, sorry. Uh, I understand that if you don't uh, don't separate cells at the division, you get this chain of uh, mm-hmm. of cells. But then, if you want to have the rosette, that's, uh, somehow the
0: chain should fall on itself. That's a fantastic question. So uh, it, it's not necessarily true that it would be a single chain because you could imagine forming branches if a cell that already has two neighbors branches out. But I think there's a sort of interesting question about how you—it's like a question of curvature, isn't it? Like you have a, a bunch—you can—it's easy to make a sheet, but you somehow, if everyone's dividing, you still have to populate a sphere. So you have to wrap that chain around a sphere. So, so the best answer that I've received about this is that the bonds between the cells, so the, the, just as Mimi said this morning, the, the reason why the cells remain together is because there's incomplete decision following division, and so there's a little bridge of cell membrane between each of the cells. Well, that bridge is very extensible, so it, it can stretch out, and maybe by that means you can accommodate uh, these, these uh you know, a, a sort of round morphology. The other uh, issue, of course, with this is that you know you, you can really only be bound to two other cells uh, in this uh, in this rosette. So you know, is, is there something else going on that's binding you to other cells? Well, we do know that they're also expressing extracellular matrix, and so there's probably some more goo uh, in in the rosette that's binding cells together in addition to the ligases. Do the flagella of the chains uh,
2: beat in unison?
0: Are they synchronous or yes. so? Uh, based on uh, not my observations. Based on Mimi and Mimi's collaborators' observations of uh, the rose- the flagella and the rosettes, uh, which showed that the, those flagella do not beat synchronously, I, I would argue a priori that I don't think that the chain, the flagella and the chains, are um, any more likely to beat synchronously. But I don't think it's honestly being measured. In fact, I think all we have are a few pictures of the chains. I don't think it's sort of hard to pin a chain down and sort of visualize the flow field or visualize the flagella because they sort of flop around a lot. So, so I don't think there's a great deal of data for me to be more confident in, in my answer to your question. Okay, so I want to recap, and this is probably... Uh, slightly patronizing for me to stand in front of this audience and have uh, this idea. But uh, I I want to present this idea in contradistinction to the idea that we're going to develop over this talk. And so this is an idea that it may have a long, long origin, but where I first encountered it uh, is in a beautiful set of papers by Ray Goldstein, uh, in around 2005, and, and Ray Goldstein was very interested, and his collaborators like John Kessler, and they were very interested in understanding multicellularity in the Volvox Did I get that right? The Volvox are a type of derived algae, a type of derived plant. So, they're not really basal to plants uh, in any way. And it's not clear that multicellularity in this this family will tell us anything about the emergence or the evolution of multicellularity. But it's a sort of a neat paradigm, a neat system uh, to play around with these ideas of what what might incentivize cells to make multicellular. to, to associate in multicellular uh, as organisms. And so here's a family, the family of the Volvocales. Uh, I can't name any of them. I think this one is Chlamydionis, and this one is, uh, sorry, maybe I can name them, and this one is Volvox Cartieri. Uh, but they, they range in size and they range in cell number, uh, and in the same way they range in cell number. Uh, and so, Ray. Really, uh, was very interested in answering the question of why there might be some advantage to taking one or more of these sizes. What might select for size? Uh, and he produced this really, really very lovely argument, and, and the argument goes something like, uh, there are flagella along the surface of any of these colonies, and the flagella beat synchronously in a very well-coordinated way. And so that means is uh, what that means is if you want to understand the collective physical effect of all of those flagella, you can essentially uh, it just impose a uniform surface stress on each point of uh, this, on, the, on the, each point of the surface of one of these colonies. And so this surface stress we call sigma s. And then you say, what's the total force of propulsion associated with all of those flagella beating synchronously? Uh, well, that's going to be the total of the surface stress, which is the same because all of the, at all points in the colony, because all of the uh, flagella are behaving in this very well-coordinated way. They're all beating in the same direction. And then just multiply by the surface area. And from that, there's some very basic hydrodynamics. You can infer that the swimming speed of the colony should increase in direct proportion to its size. So, uh, and you can validate this. I think one of the very nice things we did was measuring colony swimming speeds and, and demonstrating that this is true. And so then if you want to ask, well, you know, what is the value of swimming fast to a colony? Well, you, you, what we think, uh, what we might assume is that the colony is swimming in order to encounter things. It's trying to find molecules, or it's trying to uh, find prey. I don 't actually know what Vorbox feeds on. Uh, and, and so by swimming fast, it encounters uh, these molecules or prey, or whatever it is that it wants, at, its, at a rate that's proportional to its projected area and to its speed. So the rate at which it encounters things scales very simply with the size cubed. So it scales with the number of cells. So you swim fast enough. That the additional metabolic need uh, associated with having more cells in the same colony uh, is precisely met. So it's very delightful.
2: But, I mean, this assumes that there's a very efficient capture that sweeps up every bacterium it encounters, or a certain fraction, speed independent. It, it is able to uh, engulf. And his model is
0: for dissolved nutrients. Or dissolved nutrients. Yeah, he actually puts a dead clay number in his model and, and sort of talks about the boundary layer and the effect of diffusion in this. But I think just in terms of understanding qualitatively what's going on, bigger colonies swim faster and therefore see more stuff. And, and the pre-factor that you associate with this does, is kind of model-dependent, uh, and I'm going to be just as cavalier about the pre-factors in my model as as uh, as, as, as as I was in this slide. Uh, but you know, hopefully the underlying physics is something along these lines. And then we know there's a lot of morphological diversity and a lot of diversity in general in capture strategies, which means that there's definitely there are pressures and constraints on organisms in the way that they capture their food. Uh, and so that that's. I mean, we're just relegating that to a prefactor, factor unfortunately, uh, in, this, in this analysis. The, the main reason I present this analysis is to show you, is to argue why, based on this, we should be very, very surprised by multicellularity uh, in the coanoflagellates, in salpingo Recki, rosetta. Uh, and rosetta And Mimi showed some much more, some very beautiful data about the swimming speeds of, of these coanoflagellate colonies, and, and presented a very nice argument for why they swim very poorly. Uh, here's, here's my video uh, of of a swimming colony. It's perhaps unfair to look at one video and say that this is swimming badly, but, you uh, no, I, I said I, I'm... I'm allowed to do things that biologists regard as appalling. And and so I say that that colony swims very badly and Mimi has presented data uh, which which really makes the point in a much more quantitative way. Uh, And and the reason is very clear because you have the flagella, they're pointing in different directions. They're not coordinated as Mimi indicated and has shown with her beautiful kinematical data. Uh, And so all of these flagella which are trying to propel the colony are pointing in different directions uh, and therefore it's not going anywhere. So you're implying then that Volvox has combed its flagella so that it has a well-defined direction? It certainly has a well-defined direction. It certainly has synchronicity. Uh, there, um, I th- a vectorial coherence. Is yeah, it. so it has a pole. Uh, it has okay. uh, two poles in it. Thank you. Absolutely. I mean, how this coordination occurs is another set of interesting physics questions that are being answered by physicists. Uh, so another reason why I call this an unsophisticated form of multicellularity is that the cells in this colony are not sharing the sources. So, so it's a very different from the sort of sophisticated, derived, multicellularity of, uh, of uh, other colonies. I thought you said this morning it wasn't known whether they shared cytoplasm and- did so I just didn't. So there, there, are two answers to this. We, we, nobody has strictly used, say, quantum dots to look at, so, uh, to, to look to see whether if some labeled nutrient passes from one colony to another. But uh, the theory of the biologists is because the bridges between the colonies are so extraordinarily electron dense. If you look at them, uh, you know, in, in EM, there can be no transport across them. Okay. But you know, we're, people used to think that bacterial mats, you know, like each bacterium is distinct to itself, but now we know that they have these special nanotube structures for sharing plasmids. So it, it could be that this this is this is really a speculation, just a, a, a assumed truth.
3: I mean, in fact, in other cellular systems, electron elect, what look like electron dense plugs in holes or gaps are often later shown to be material passing from one compartment to another. Do,
4: do they have uh, gap junctions encoded in the
0: genome? I'm, I'm a humble mathematician. I don't know what a gap junction is. Is it something that is a transmembrane thing, or? Yeah. I, I think that I'm not going to be able to answer your question actually. Even if you, it would be edifying for me to know what a gap junction is, <laughs> but then go, oh, maybe I don't know. Mimi might know. Nicole would certainly. Nicole,
3: Nicole
0: would certainly know. It's a thing
3: that connects
0: cells, and stuff can go in between it. Yeah. Ah, uh, okay. So, so we, the, uh, the truth, uh, as I understand it, and this is just my understanding from talking to biologists and them having to put things in words that I can understand. Uh, is that there are no junctions, uh, there, there's no, there are no conduits between the cells, like no known conduits between the cells. Uh, there's just these bridges, and the bridges are really very electron dense, but uh, as, as, I don't know your name, sorry. I'm
3: Cassandra.
0: As Cassandra problematized, uh, the, has already problematized that, and we also know that there's sort of a, a sort of web of a, uh, ECM between the cells. So, okay. So why am I interested in this problem, and why do I think that there's something uh, that fluid dynamics, which is where my background is, can contribute? Well, I I said that these colonies uh, don't swim very well, but it turns out that they they generate feeding flows which are really kind of tremendously large. And so hopefully you'll be able to see this. This doesn't seem to be the best uh, the best contrast, but uh,
4: can you go like that?
0: That, better. Yeah, that's better. Okay, thank you so much. So, what you can hopefully see is from all directions, these uh, these particles here, which are actually the algophagus, the bacteria, are being drawn into the colony. And this is a two dimensional flow. Uh, so what we're seeing is a colony that's somewhat close to a cover slip. It turns out, if you measure the hydrodynamics of this uh, flow, the cover slip interaction isn't important. You the cover slip effect isn't very important. But you are seeing a slice through the flow. Just uh, there's there's no sort of laser illumination going on here. We're just looking in DIC. Uh, well, Mark Dale, who took this movie, is just looking in DIC from above.
3: The particles are bacteria, sir.
0: A- yeah, the particle particles particle? are the phages that the colony wants to eat. And those are rod shaped or
2: spherical? Or kind
0: of? no. Oh, I, I mean, in, in optical, you're not really going to be able to tell. I mean, these are micron-sized particles. So, uh, like, I think that they're rod shaped. It must be no. I mean, yeah, it's certainly no. But I don't think I can look at this video. Anymore. How many? Bacteria can eat go because it seems that like, they are catching a lot of bacteria. Yeah, yeah, their collars are filled with uh, bacteria. So I I am like the the wrong person to ask. Mimi could certainly do a, a much better answer to that question I think the, in the dozens, I think.
2: In our feeding studies, I think the most prey inside a cell in vacuoles was 20, which is pretty stuff-full. And are the rod axes aligned with the hydrodynamic flow field, or maybe you to that? The, the, the rod. Axes, they're rod shaped uh, organisms. You may not be able to see it here, but is it known whether they're aligned with the
0: flow Oh, you velocity. wanted to know the shape of the choanoflagellates. No, the
3: bacteria.
2: The bacteria.
0: Oh, the bacteria. Are they, do the bacteria align with the direction of the flow? Yes. Uh, I, I, I couldn't tell you a priori, but I mean, given you know, anything that sort of has slightly elongated is yes. going to have a Jeffries orbit. So, I mean... The answer is yes. I would guess yes. No, they're not going to be aligned. They're going to rotate. They're going to tumble. Yeah. I mean, I, I believe that our don't have flagella, So I don't think that I mean, although they may have other motility. So, you know, the, the swimming is also going to... Involved, be involved. I mean, you can see there's not a great deal of random motion going on here, though. You know, the actual bacteria don't have a great deal of choice about being sucked into this uh, this, this epicenter destruction. Um, so, so the one kernel of an idea. If I manage to communicate anything clearly, which is always, uh, you know, always always touch and go with one of my talks. But if I can communicate anything clearly in this talk, the thing that I want to communicate to you is that the benefit of uh, the, the colonies accrue, the cells in the colony accrue, is precisely that they do not swim well. So they're not swimming well. It's precisely the same as they're feeding well. And, I'll expl- and that's what I'm going to explain over the rest of the talk. Question. What is the time scale of the movie? So you're so watching it in real time. This is just with a flip video camera. So do you want to know what the flow speeds are? Yes. Or? Yes. Are the flow speeds? Uh, I think they're on the order of 10 microns a second. Okay. So, uh, again, this is a physical audience. Is there? Uh, and, and so I sort of hesitate to patronize you, because I'm sure you understand these things much better than I do, but uh, they, uh Just to orient you on how we are, or just to give you some sense of how we are going to model these flows and and try and answer this question or or try and prove this this provocative statement that I made that swimming badly means feeding well, Uh, it's by analyzing these flows using uh, Stokes' approximation. So so what that means is we look at these things, which are the Navier-Stokes equations, that's familiar to everyone. And we know that uh, for sufficiently small organisms and sufficiently slow flows, uh, the inertial terms in these equations, which scale with the Reynolds number, are very, very small. And so we can throw away the inertial term that appears on this side of the equation, and we're left with a pair of equations that are linear. Uh, and also instantaneous, they have no memory to them. And because of that, the techniques that we can use to solve these equations are very similar to the techniques that you would use uh, that we teach in EM classes, or other electrostatics classes. I don't know if people even teach electrostatics anymore. But uh, uh, the the same techniques from electrostatics where we construct Green's functions, singular solutions to the equations, can be used uh, to solve uh, the fluid dynamical equations for flow around uh, the colonies. That's the point I just want to make. And I'm going to make a very, very drastic simplification, but one that turns out to be well validated when you look at the kinematics of the real flow. So Mimi talked uh, this morning, uh, or mentioned at the end of her talk, the other life stage uh, of these, one of the other life stages that these cells have, whereby they can fix themselves to a surface using a little lothika, and then they can use a flagella, and then they use their flagella to generate the flow relative to that surface. Uh, And so we can visualize and quantify the flow speeds associated. We can do velocimetry uh, on the flow for one of these cells. And it turns out that this uh, flow field on the left-hand side, which is the real flow field, is modeled very, very precisely by a flow field associated with a single singularity. So that means that I can approximate almost the entire flow field using a single point force. To drive uh, drive these equations, the, the Stokes equations, the linear version of the Navier-Stokes equations, just like making
2: a dipole far field approximation in electrostatics.
0: Uh, I think it is it like making a dipole approximation. So so the, the form of the um, the dipole approximation is exactly the same as a source dipole in in the Stokes equations. Uh, the point force is the Stokeslet, which is. It's a completely different flow field. Uh, it's a completely different in form, but I would say it's analogous to to actually the point source okay. uh, in electrostatics. I mean, it's where we start uh, in the in the Stokes constructing our hierarchy of singularities. But you have the force balance. Hmm? You have the force balance because the sum of the total forces should be zero, right? Well, the the colony is stuck to, or the cell rather, is stuck to a slide. So, so there's some force being going on here, but that's not driving the fluid flow, flow. I mean, if you wanted to actually say what is the, uh, if you wanted to know how to get from the point force. To, to the flow field, you have to include a system of images, which is the same as achieving this force balance. But we're not going to talk about that detail, because that's, you know, that's just because we set it up in this geometry. Those images don't matter, and, and for freely swimming colonies, or it's colonies that are failing to swim, which are what I'm going to talk about. And the
2: tether that's anchoring it to the slide is rigid, or is it floppy? I am going to lean. Toward Mimi, and I don't I see think them moving.
3: I think it's so skinny that it's going to be flexible.
2: It will be floppy, yeah, so slow. it could be flopping around
0: in its own flow field. It So it yeah. is, I, I would say, if the image you have in mind of a sessile felt to feeder is something like a vorticella which moves and, and uh, sort of ebbs and, and maybe even changes its direction, as our collaborator Rachel Pepper is, is investigating, I, I wouldn't say it's like that. You have a, a cup, and the cell fits in. The cup, and, yeah. and generally, you see the cell, and it's oriented to be perpendicular to the surface. And, and so, while there the is sure, okay. it doesn't seem to be you know, as significant. It
2: doesn't seem in still water to flex itself, but if you impose some flow, bend, flow on bend, it would bend. I can bend, imagine bend. that stalk
3: is so skinny that it would okay. bend. Right, thank you. But
0: I'm
3: making
0: that up. Okay. So. So, so we, we were able to model the flow field associated with a single cell that's tethered to a boundary using this single singularity, a point force singularity. So we're not interested in cells that are tethered to boundaries. They're immensely interesting, but for the purpose of this talk, we want to know what happens to the cell when it's allowed to swim. Well, when it's allowed to swim, we have to add other sources, other forces to the mix. So if it's allowed to swim, it's being propelled by the force that that its flagellum generates, which we're able to measure for a tethered cell. But there are two other forces acting. There's a force on the body, which is a drag force. And there's also a drag force, which is actually generally larger than the force on the body, that's associated with the flagellum moving through the fluid. So it itself has its own drag force. And now uh, you asked about balance of forces. Now we have to balance forces on the swimming cell. There are no external forces acting. Its weight is insignificant. Uh, and so you know, this force balance tells us that the sum of the two drag forces has to be equal to the force of the body, uh, equal to the force that the flagellum is able to apply to the fluid. So what does the flow field associated with these point forces acting on the fluid look like? Uh, well, this is, this is the, the major singularity that we're going to deal with in this talk. It, it's called a stress load. So this is, it's a force dipole. Uh, just, uh, it's somewhat akin to a force dipole, but there's a penalty for and I'm going to for isotropy, and I'm gonna talk about that in the next slide. But if we just think of it as a force dipole, the effect that there's a propulsive force here, so there's a drag force acting on the cell here, and then there's a flagellum force at the tip of the flagellum, which is also partly canceled by the flagellum moving through the fluid itself. The sum of those two forces creates a flow field. And that flow field has a structure, and the structure is interesting to me, and I want to show it to you. So we can derive an explicit expression for the flow field associated with this stress set. Uh, and uh, the, the important thing is that the flow field decays like 1 over r squared, and the stress and the strength of the flow field has to be coded into a tensor, which we call the stressor tensor, and if you have a cloud of particles, each of which is a, a applying a force to the fluid uh, then that cloud of particle from that, the positions and the strengths and directions of those forces, we can derive a, an explicit expression for the stress of the strength, and so it's a sort of symmetrized version of the External product of the forces uh, and their dis- the displacement. so there's a sort of momentum effect going on here. And then there's this additional term, uh, which is not something you tend to see in electrostatics, which, is a, which penalizes anisotropy. Uh, penalizes isotropy. So we have to subtract off the trace of this sort of complicated outer product. I'm not really going to talk about this term until I actually start to think
2: about colonies. Uh, but so there's a sum over i, so that's a sum over all material points. That
0: yeah, if you have a here, we have only two point forces. If you sort of add these two point forces together, and I'm in sorry. general, we're going to use discrete. So sets we have 24 points.
2: of these organisms. We have a sum over i going from one to 24.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and two forces per organism. Right. Thank you. And then delta is what? Oh, delta is the uh, Kronecker delta, the identity matrix. Oh, okay. Okay, so a slide of math, and you have to forgive me. In, in a math department, you're expected to show a certain amount of math. And, and, and then people think, oh, you're serious enough, and you can stop showing math. Uh, so so the, the, math, the math here is, again, something I want to dwell on for just a second. So associated with the stress flow, you can see in inward. And outward regions, and so by the conservation of mass, the amount of flow across any, the net amount of flow across any uh, sphere centered uh, on this stress surface is going to be zero. There can be no consumption of flow. But there's an, add, but the, if you evaluate the total amount of flow in, that's a number that's independent of the size of the sphere, and that's the proxy that we're going to use for the feeding effectiveness of the, uh, col- of the cell or of the colony. Uh, so what we're doing in making this approximation is we're neglecting any nuance or, or biological, biologically interesting information about how the cell utilizes its feeding flows, how good it is at capturing prey from these feeding flows. But we have a fundamental constraint on how much fluid it can clear at any one time. And we're going to compare that fundamentally constrained amount of fluid that it can clear between cells and colonies. So we have, in some sense, an upper bound on how well they can feed, but we don't know whether they can use that that food or fluid in different ways uh, between the different colonies. And that's just the second half of Mimi's talk that I can contribute nothing to at this point in the analysis. Okay. Uh, so what, if we want to know what that flux is, the total amount of fluid in across any sphere, and it doesn't matter what the radius of the sphere is, you can extend the sphere out to infinity or make it arbitrarily small because the flow field decays like one over r squared, we have a complicated integral expression which involves modified uh, elliptic functions. Uh, but the important uh, aspect of this expression is, uh, so and the lambda one, lambda two, lambda three here are the eigenvalues of the stress load, Uh matrix. So the stress matrix is symmetric, so it has three eigenvalues. It's traceless, so there's eigenvalues sum to zero. Uh, and so we, we, we can compute the flux explicitly as soon as we know the stress matrix, just by evaluating these integrals. Okay. But in order to get, so oh, uh, let's put this... Uh, so, so to have a more transparent expression for how the feeding flux depends on those eigenvalues, we consider the case, and, and this case is often realized for real distributions of cells, where uh, one, of the eigenvalues is, one of the positive eigenvalues is significantly larger than the other positive eigenvalue. And then we find that the flux scales very, very simply with just the size of its largest eigenvalue. And so to give us even more physical intuition, we look at how this scales. And you remember that I said that there was a force in a moment arm. So the, the size of this argument scales with the size of the force that's being applied and the size and the distance of that force uh, from the center of the organism. And uh, so, so you might wonder, by including stre- by thinking only about stresslets, whether I'm neglecting the fact that the colony can also encounter food by swimming. Uh, and it turns out you can, you can also include that if you want, and it's a factor of three smaller, even for the faster swimming cells, uh, than the amount of food it encounters by generating the stress flow. Another way of thinking about this is the stress that flow decays like 1 over R squared, so there's always some length scale over which it's dominant, uh, some near-field length scale over which it's dominant over the fluid that the cell sees by adduction, which has no 1 over R singularity.
2: But if that length scale was smaller than the
0: organism's size, it doesn't matter. It's always about the size of the I mean, everything scales with FD. So. <clears throat> and for the organisms that we're looking at, it's actually significantly larger. So uh, swimming is really not, not so important. Uh, so, given, given that there's this stress set, and the stress dictates how much fluid you see, what can the colony of the cells do to manipulate the stressor, to see more fluid? Uh, and so we asked this a very simple question, which is can the cells do better by feeding together? Uh, and so we, uh, we imagined a proto filamentous colony or proto rosette, which consists of two cells that are touching to each other because of the, this uh, incomplete bridge that forms between them. And uh, we, allow the, we, we say that there's some program that, that determines, some morphogenic program that determines the relative angles of these cells. And so there are three angles that we can manipulate. Uh, corresponding to for these three cells. sorry, for these two cells. And and, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show how things depend on on these polar angles, theta 1, theta 2, which control how far the cells diverge from each other. Uh, And in all of the calculations I'm going to show you, or in the calculations I'm about to show you, I optimize over phi. So given any theta 1, theta 2, I find the best value of phi that maximizes the feeding flux. And and then I see how well the cells could do in in that uh, configuration. And so just as before, we have this... uh, you know, this problem of figuring out how to associate forces uh, with the different uh, cells in this colony, and we associate a pair of, or three forces with each, colon, with each cell in the colony. There's, a, there's the same propulsive force associated with the flagella, which we put at the flagella tip. And then because the whole colony is moving and, and also possibly rotating, there are also drag forces on the body. Uh, so on the body and also on the flagella, and we have to conserve. We have to set the total force on the body to be zero. And in order to set the total force on the body to be zero, we have to compute the rate at which it swims and spins. Those are free variables, uh, but everything can be derived simply from the geometry of the colony.
3: can you say again what what, what you are optimizing for
0: here? Oh, so I have two cells. They're stuck together. And I'm asking, where, what angle should the cells, the angles between the two cells feed? In order to? Maximize, maximize the flux and maximize the amount of fluid clearance. OK.
3: So that's what better would mean here.
0: Yes. OK. Yes. Okay. Sorry, I'm being very imprecise. That's no. your proxy
2: for the bacteria that it might be ingesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How strong a feeding flow can it create, at least on the length Are scale of the body? Or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. OK. So so we can make a graph of these things. Uh, So we can make a graph. Again, I said I'm just going to show you how things depend on theta 1, theta 2, the two polar angles, how much the two flagella diverge. Uh, And we can compute the flux. And I divide the flux by twice the flux that a single cell sees. Uh, so what I'm doing here, a flux of one means that you're seeing exactly the same flux. Your clearance is exactly the same as if, there were no, uh, as if you were swimming freely by yourself and you hadn't decided to, to try and take a reckless chance on cooperating with another cell. Uh, and you can see this is a sort of slightly complicated uh, space of uh, dependence of flux on these angles. Uh, but there are two interesting states here. There's a state that looks like, which corresponds to the petals of, these flower, of this flower. The, so again, flux uh, is the height of this, and the, the x and y-axis are, are the two angle variables. And because of the sort of degeneracy of our coordinate system, the petals of this flower all represent the same point. Uh, and also, there's an interesting flux. We might be interested in what, what's going on here, where there's another local optimum in the feeding flux. You left out pi, so What are your units of the
2: phi, of the theta's, sorry?
0: Oh, uh, so theta goes from 0 to pi over 2.
2: OK, so minus 2 is meaningful
0: in this? It, it's a three-dimensional plot. So it really goes from 0 to what, what's 2? It's like 1.6 or something like that. I, I don't know. I can know pi is 3.1. Yeah, it's about 1.6. It's, it's kind of hard to see where that corresponds to, but it's about 1.6 here. It doesn't extend it to you.
3: So since theta is going to be some function of the morphology of the collar, mm-hmm. does this oh. predict what optimal sizes
0: are for different species of planoflagellates that have differently shaped collars? Uh, so it turns out that the true optimum... Uh, well, excellent point, Cassandra. i show you where the optimum are. So this local optimum... Uh, which is the thing in the center corresponds to two cells stuck together. And you can see in that conformation, they may not be able to do this because their collars would overlap. We're not modeling the collars, so we don't I know see. that. So but the, the true optimal configuration is where there's two cells, uh, uh, as Mimi calls it, uh, bump to bump. So the, the two cells are pointing in diametrically opposite directions. The, the collars here would be here and here, and they're not going to be interacting.
3: But I mean, presumably you could extend this in some way that you know how to do that. I don't into real colonies that we see that have many, many cells whose collars will bump. And they will bump or not, or they'll bump in worse ways depending on the shape of those collars. And maybe this approach can predict what, what basically colony sizes should look like for different quantifiable species and we could perhaps get those data.
0: So, so for, for filamentous colonies, I, I can show you what happens when you start to add more cells. And it's true that we ignore the, this very important constraint of you need your collars not to overlap. Sure, sure. Uh, but maybe one might, one might argue that maybe the collar morphology should be instead dictated by them. But exactly, right? Or maybe that is, yeah, maybe that's it. Morphologically, I mean, we we can find the size of the collar. Absolutely. Yeah.
3: I mean, it'd be interesting to see what has a greater range, normalized to something: colony size or collar shape. Mm-hmm. Which one is is one constraining the other? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And you and you, do, you did run that model when I gave you the X Y Z coordinates mm-hmm. of where of the flagella were. -hmm. on Actual
2: colony. Mm
0: -hmm. So you, you know, can I give you more? Yeah, yeah. We're we're just waiting for the Mimi is digitizing that crazy. Well, uh,
2: that's what undergraduates
0: do. Morning, noon, and night. It's uh, (laughs) sorry. Sorry. So
1: I'm sure you said it. So one is uh, the flux for a singleton. Yeah. And uh, so the, the central peak of that flower comes all the way to 1? It's about 1, yeah. So I'm all surprised that they actually don't impede each other. Oh, so let's see, so Will know, doubling... there are these troughs where they actually impede each other.
0: Yes, goes below is, uh, you can see it goes up and then there's, a, some, there's some impedance here. Uh, yeah, there's quite a sharp then, drop off. So I guess I'm a little bit surprised, that, so is it exactly 1? Uh, I, you know, yeah, I didn't speed, check, but I, I wouldn't. The reason for it to be one. Uh, I would not be surprised if it's one, because you're you're doubling the force. So, so you're doubling the the flux. I mean, the swimming speed is going to be the same the, for two cells swimming. The calculation is
1: done uh,
0: with sort of point, It's points,
1: yeah. Uh, so, so
0: as opposed to actual spheres stuck to each other. So other no, I'm just using just resistive forces okay, to, right. to model all of I these. So in which case it wouldn't in, indeed be exactly one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so absolutely. If, if yeah. my hydrodynamics are yeah, yeah. more sophisticated, yeah. it wouldn't be one. When a flagella is moving, is the force approximately constant, or is the force also oscillating? You would expect that the, the force would oscillate, and you'd have large transverse uh, forces that yeah. that are uh, varying in time. Uh, over the, so any, I mean, again, I can only appeal to this diagram here. Like, sure, sure, sure. I mean, over any sort of small, even, even if you average only for small times, sure, I sure. mean, we see. But then when you have two, two guys
1: in the opposite corner, and if they are not synchronized, or if they're synchronized in a different
0: phase, does this have an effect? Or does the propulsive force change with time? You know, I don't know that, actually. That's a really interesting question. I, I, I have, must confess that I do not know whether if you measure the... So one ver- answer to your question is if you measure the swimming speed of a single cell, is it steady? I mean, and, and you know, modular its behavior and its turning, or, or is it sort of, does it ebb and flow? Yeah. And I don't know, actually. And that's a really good question. It's a great question. Uh, so, so the one, you know, one... Were we to average... Uh, the forces. I would expect that you would sort of see shuffling back and forth in this configuration. But the stresslet itself, which is based on averaging, the, I guess you, you could potentially increase your moment arm that way by making you sure that your force was very large, correlated with when your excursion was very large. That's a really good point. My model is really very embarrassingly unsophisticated. Actually, not embarrassingly unsophisticated. Probably unsophisticated, but. Uh, Okay, so why do cells in this configuration feed better? So they're not going anywhere. I actually color-coded, so this bump-to-bump configuration, I color-coded the, the leaves of my, uh, my flower by the speed that the cells swim at, uh, also normalized by the speed of a single cell. So height represents flux, color represents speed, and the, at the, uh, as clearly when, when the cells reach uh, this configuration, their speed goes to zero. So obvious, everything is very symmetric. Why is that beneficial to the colony? Well, if you think about things in terms of this stressor, you have these two forces that are as far apart as they possibly can be, so you're increasing the momentum. Another more subtle uh, contribution to this is because the cell's not swimming, there's no canceling drag force from the flagella. So, so the forces are both as far apart as they can be and as large as they can be with no drag force. Okay, so this is my version of an answer to Cassandra's question. It's again a very naive model, a very unsophisticated model. Uh, but we, we asked well, you know, two, if you put two cells together uh, and, and the best configuration for them is to sort of really be butting heads like this, I mean, there's not really a program where it's very clear how to add a third cell. So so where should you put your additional cells in? And so we were interested in generating filaments. So in this first part of the... So for for now, I'm just going to talk about not formation of rosette-shaped colonies, but formation of these sort of long filamentary chain-like colonies. And so if your program consists of fixing the relative angles between uh, the cells so fixing the divergence of their, their flagella and the amount of twists you put in one cell when you, when you divide into that cell, then if you add cells to this configuration and you always fix that program, which is maybe too strong a constraint to apply to the cells, but if it's just a very naive way that they might generate, uh, generate more and more cells and generate the conformation, then the backbone that those cells uh, grow along has to be a helix with two fixed parameters. It has to have a fixed torsion and a fixed curvature. And uh, so, so the cells, the spine of the cells has to be lied on some kind of circle or some other kind of degenerate helix or along a helix with some kind of pitch.
2: So, so this is going through the centers of mass of the cells that makes the helix? Yeah. yeah absolutely. And what, what angle is the flagella? Are you going to tell us relative to so, the so,
0: so you're right. There are four degrees of freedom in this system, right. which is exactly the same as the number of degrees of freedom you have when you decide where to place each cell relative to the next cell. Uh, and so the, the other two degrees of freedom, just as David says, are where you put the flagella relative to this helix. Uh, and you're free to choose that and so there are two more angles to determine and what I'm going to show you in, in, in the plots I'm going to prescribe the torsion and the curvature of the helix and then I'm going to optimize the angle so I have these two angles and I'm just going to make them as large as, as good as they can be to make the flux as large as it can be and just as Cassandra said there are real constraints physical constraints about where the flagella can go because there are colors in system which we're totally ignoring but you 're also going to optimize the curvature and the torsion and stuff, yeah, yeah, I do everything I optimize I optimize the hell out of the system i mean it 's not clear what, I, what the value of my optimization is, but i 'm going to optimize everything so so I can prescribe kappa and tau and generate this landscape where I optimize. Uh, the other angles, the angles of the flagella relative to the system, and I can try and uh, decide where I am on this landscape, where the, what parameter kappa and tau, what the parameters kappa and tau should be. And it turns out it's very sensitive to the number of cells that you're trying to make in, in this chain. And so, uh, so we, we sort of generate our landscape in this way, and we, so we start with three cells, and we generate our landscape. Again, I'm optimizing the angles, and uh, there are, there are sort of two interesting points in this configuration. Well, this is also an interesting point, but the two points I'm going to emphasize are there's a global optimum, which has large curvature and large uh, torsion. And then there's another sort of local optimum here, which lives on this axis, which has no torsion and, and some kind of curvature. And the configurations of the cells are in these sort of relatively locally optimal configurations. In one case, you have a sort of stack of cells, uh, so the global optimum consists of a stack of cells with the flagellas sort of pointing out in uh, cancelling directions. Uh, and in uh, this local optimum, you know, we could start to think of this as maybe half of a ring of cells. But now as we add more cells in the system, uh, as we increase the number of cells, our global optimum starts to disappear. Now we're up to six cells. Again, I'm normalising the flux uh, by the number of cells in the system and the flux on a single individual cell that's swimming freely. And so you can see that I really do see benefit from these uh, from cooperative associations. My flux uh, relative to a single cell has increased by 40%. Provided uh, I take this confirmation here. And this, so so we're seeing a confirmation where tau is zero, so it's a ring, uh, and kappa has a number which is going to vary with the number of cells.
2: And your units of kappa and one, uh, kappa and tau are
0: such that you never exceed unity? Yeah, so, so kappa is essentially set so that kappa equals 1 corresponds to a ring which has the diameter of a radius, the, the cell radius. Okay. Absolutely. So I'm very vague on these details. And then by the time you get to 12 cells, uh, your, your global optimum that con- corresponded of making a stack has completely disappeared, and the optimum that's now best for you has no torsion. It's an cer- almost perfect circle, and you have the cells arranged in this sort of hemi ring. With all of their flagella pointing outwards, and you know, we, we can say that this looks somewhat consistent with the morphologies of the the chains that I showed you, like in the picture at the beginning. But the, those morphologies have never been quantified. So here you're just looking at the chains, but not at the kind of spherical the rosettes. Yes, yes. So, so, so this is a really interesting question, which is, you know, why, why. Why do you take these two more? So if this is sort of something that, this, so, you know, we, we, we emphasize the rosette because it's a sphere, and physicists have spheres. But the chains that also have a favorable feeding are, in fact, much more ubiquitous. I mean, except in the presence of this algorophagus, uh, the colonies, in, when they're maintained in log phase, will form rings or form filaments.
1: If you still increase the number of cells, uh, the, these chains remain the,
0: the optimum? So, so it's always, uh, at least as far as I've experimented uh, by optimizing, it's always a hemi ring uh, with, the, the, uh, with the flagella pointing outwards. So 24 cells is also a hemi ring? Yeah, yeah, so the curvature is just going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. So it never closes on itself? So. It doesn't seem to want to close. Huh. I don't have a physical interpretation of that. I mean, you can see why this is a, you know, you have a strong momentum effect, but... I don't know why you don't make a whole ring actually. I haven't thought about that. It's a really good question. Okay. So 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 this is a program that's sort of fun to pursue as a mathematician in as much as we can sort of decide how the cells should position themselves uh, if they want to make a colony that's optimal uh, given the number of cells in the colony. But it's not clear that the colony is necessarily trying to optimize itself. It's not clear that it's trying to optimize itself for anything, but it's not clear that it's trying to optimize itself for a target number of cells. And the issues attendant on that are sort of clear if you make one of these, these colonies that's optimal with 12 cells. Oh, my computer is just having a moment, uh, which that's optimal for 12 cells, and you can look at the intermediate states that you had to form in order to go from uh, a single cell to this 12-cell ring, and you calculate the flux associated with those intermediate states. So, uh, so what you see is that there's kind of an ontogenetic barrier. Associated with this. So I'm, well, here I'm plotting the number of cells in the colony and the flux divided by the number of cells as we go through these intermediate morphs, as we go from a single cell to uh, this optimal ring of 12 cells, which, uh, you know, once you get to that optimal ring, your feeding efficiency is, uh, well, your, the amount of fluid clearance, which we're using as a, as a rough approximate. Uh, uh, it's 75% greater than for a single cell. But in order to get there, you have to pass through a bunch of states, intermediate states, that are very, very far from optimal. In fact, you're a lot worse than individual cells. Question? Didn't you show that for a hemi ring of six, you also had a higher flux than one? Yeah, yeah, so, so uh, the, the question here is what is your morphogenic program? And so if you can always be a hemi ring and the radius of the ring increases, uh, with each uh, cell that you add, uh, then you're, you're always going to be locally optimal. But we don't know that because the electron, the the bridge between the cells doesn't seem to move, uh, it's it is as plausible, and I'm just exploring this as a mathematical hypothesis, it is, is as plausible that what's actually conserved, what actually is conserved is the angle between the cells. And that means the only way you can grow a ring is by first growing, you know, putting two cells and sort of gradually filling the, the ring in cell by cell. Has anyone
1: measured the angles between the bridges?
0: No, no, we have almost no uh, geometric data for the, the chain cells. We, If you increase
1: the number of cells, does the value of F over N still
0: increase? I don't have enough information to answer that question. I think the answer is yes. Simply, So if we argue this from a moment arm point of view, you have the same net force, but the moment arm increases with the number of cells. Experimentally,
1: the average number of cells per chain is what?
0: We don't know. We don't know. Almost, we don't even know that number for the rosettes. We have a sort of certain, vague, uh, sort of slack, fairly slack constraints on these things, on how large they are. But there's no quantitative data that I can show you to confirm this. I mean, this is really sort of the tissues of a mathematical argument. That, uh, and, and you know, as I said, if I can only show one thing, and I probably can only show one thing, there is a benefit from. Associating And that benefit is, comes from, and just to reiterate this, it comes from swimming less well because you have these cancelling forces.
4: Is there a record, a
0: uh, time-lapse record, showing the formation of such a... Uh, there is a time-lapse record showing the formation of a rosette. Uh, and only one such record. And that record oh, was regarded was, as interesting enough uh, to warrant screen. a paper in current biology. No,
4: I wasn't asking about a rosette, I was asking about a uh, screen...
0: No, there's no record. So you,
4: it, don't, so you don't know how it
0: actually forms? Well, we know it forms by sequential division of, of cells. I mean, if you ask me how I know that, I've never looked at, you know, spent a great deal of time staring at the microscope through these things, at these things. Uh, so I, I don't think there's any sort of quantitative time series going on. But the, the experimentalists are fairly convinced that the sequential division of cells. Uh, and you can even see the effects of that sequential division, in that sometimes the, the cells, uh, a cell, the cell in the centre of the colony will uh, divide, and you will start to see branches being formed because two the two products of that division, one of them inherits both of the bridges to the contacting cells. So we know that cells are dividing all the time within the colony, but I don't think I can like answer your question any better than that. I mean, just this, this is a plausible morphogenic program based on geometry. And, and constraints that we know uh, can be enforced morphogenically, but I don't know. It,
3: it yeah. a, go ahead. Oh, thanks. This would, uh, you'd have some specific predictions if you were to make a time-lapse of the creation of, let's say, a 12-mer chain, you'd have some specific predictions coming out of here as to what shape you would expect the intermediates yeah. to adopt. It would be fabulous. Would be to yeah. Yeah, to yeah. see yeah. What, what, what shapes do they take on. Absolutely. Yeah, it, might, yeah, it might depend on how long they spend at each intermediate mm-hmm. number. I don't know what that, how long that is.
0: It's certainly plausible to assume that the amount of time you spend in each intermediate state is going to decrease with the number of cells. Because if we just think of cell division as being a random Poisson process, the number of cells cells dividing in any given time is going to increase with the number of cells in the system. Well, is it Poisson though, right? I'm wondering, is
3: is your likelihood to divide different if you are already with three neighbors or if you're on your own or if you have 12? I don't know if this is known. From the this is
0: a really, really good question, and I don't know. We don't know whether it depends on how much food you're getting, whether it's, uh, I mean, I don't even know to what it, I mean, people know a lot of stuff about yeast cell division and the timing of yeast cell division. We know that there are these gene cyclones, for example, that regulate this stuff and also are sort of almost regulated to maximize stochasticity in the system. But we don't, I mean, use the non-coronatagulins. No, they almost certainly are using cyclins. But I mean, that's, that's,
3: that's great once you get started. And once you need mitosis, you need to control the whole situation. But when you would like to undergo. And just to be clear, these chain-like morphologies form in the absence of that weird bacterium that induces rosette. Absolutely. And so in natural lab cultures, they'll have chains of an equal distribution of all possible lengths
0: we don't know we don't know anything. okay okay uh, my claim has to again be very modest all i can show is that there is cooperative hydrodynamic benefit <coughs> in feeding together i can't really even validate any of my predictions but we can make honest predictions which hopefully will be you know smashed on the anvil of experiment so you predict that the optimum shape would be half circle mm-hmm. but the experiments like looks almost like a flat it looks like an experimental chain that you showed at the beginning. Yeah. We, we should, uh, I mean, we, we can argue about this. This is literally the only photo that Mark could share with me, the experimentalist could share with me uh, for this system. So, uh, uh, Do you think that does look like half a circle? Oh, yeah. I think it, it looks
2: like half a circle. Yeah. I don't know. In perspective. <laughs> in <it's a circle laughs> <and> perspective. <laughs> We're seeing it in three dimensions
0: and okay. it's projected. <laughs> Okay. Well this I, I don't know. We—we we could have a vote. I mean, we could say, like, <laughs> you know, a dozen distinguished physicists sat yeah. down and, <laughs> and analyzed this picture, and uh, I, it could be half a circle. But I mean, I—I'd say that's a stretch. And, yeah. the, and there are eight. Am I correct? There are
2: eight organisms in that in that
0: putative. So I never counted them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I get
3: nine. nine. Or is that one something on the collar of them?
0: It could, it could be six. Oh yeah, the, the distinguished physicists are disagreeing <laughs> on the number of cells. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, it, it, we, we don't know how whether there is some target number that they're getting to. I mean, what we can say is that uh, if there is a target number, then this program really disadvantages almost everything until you get to that target number. So, it might be that this is not the program they use <clears> at <throat> all.
3: Or it might be, because we don't know what the distribution of different NMERS is in a real situation.
0: Absolutely. So I just, I mean, all all I can do is highlight issues. Uh, So The other issue is that if your program is really to, to, it really determines the distribution and the orientation of cells by fixing the relative angles between cells, well, you have the possibility of accumulating a lot of measurement error when you do that. Uh, and so I don't know how precise morphogenesis. I know almost nothing about the science of morphogenesis. But, but I, I do know that sort of if you sort of stick things together, there's a certain engineering inaccuracy that's associated with sticking things together. Uh, and so if you simulate the, these configurations of cells and you introduce an engineering inaccuracy of five degrees between each cell, which seems you know, not, not implausible given that these are messy biological systems, then, then your optimal orientations are practically destroyed. So we simulate this these small, small variations in angle, and the colonies that we produce never and never acquire this maximum, this enormous flux Uh And so in the, high, in the context of that, I really think it's interesting to consider rosettes. Sorry, my computer's again being very slow. It's interesting to consider rosettes where the cells have this, I don't know, maybe this is, this is a too, too hopeful of I me, mean. whether the cells have this kind of crystalline, like they seem very ordered. Be good. (laughs) Okay. Nope. Okay. So the cells have this ordered structure. Again, it's just. People staring at pictures. That's the best that we can offer about this system. So we can look at these pictures, and it looks like the cells are ordered relative to each other. It looks like they're quite closely packed in. And that seems like a program that you can generate reproducible structures using. The cells are allowed to rearrange in a rosette, and there's some fluidity that enables them to adopt a conformation that's... makes them sort of ordered and well-packed in together. And we can think of lots of forces that would cause that to happen. Uh, the problem is that those conformations have awful feeding characteristics, for precisely the reason that David brought up uh, in Mimi's talk, which is that the forces are pointing in uh, many, many different directions. And the, the net force on the system decay. It uh, looks like the square root of the number of forces. Uh, and so that's not so important to the stresslet as the amount of isotropy, which can be certainly characterized. And with these cells that are in these configurations, the isotropy is very, very large. And, and that's the pernicious effect. So we we're just talking about moment arms uh, that determine the stresslet tensor. But there's also something that penalizes isotropy. If, this, if what you get by adding all these forces and moments together is very, very isotropic, then this term kills it. So, You know, having all of these forces pointing in in all different directions is not able to generate the coherent cones that you need for a large stress lift. And we can quantify that. We can say that the flux per cell in this configuration is actually a factor of 10 less uh, than the flux for individual cells, if you have 24 cells. I might just skip these slides because uh, I want to tell you about... Is it okay if I tell you about fungi? Have one over. I have some neat things to tell you about fungi. Sure. but the, the, the reason I wanted to bring this, because I know that there are physicists in the audience, and the reason I wanted to bring this to your attention, is because it means that the flux is what determines the flux for uh, the system is really sensitive to whatever defects that are in the cell placement, the cell cell placement. Uh, and so we were trying to think of scenarios where we could generate defects that would create uh, large fluxes uh, in the system. And it turns out, and I'm not going to show this movie, that the cells grow, the colonies grow to a certain size and then they bud off. There's a fission event. And, and then uh, what is left after that is thought by the experimentalists, but never really quantified, to be two hemispherical colonies. And so it's, it's thought that colonies spend a lot of their time in a sort of hemispherical scene. And so we can measure the fluxes for hemispheres of well-ordered cells, and it turns out that their fluxes are significantly larger than the fluxes for spheres. They're much less isotropic, but the fluxes are still much less than you would get for individually swimming cells. But this isn't actually uh, the answer. The experimental data seems to suggest that the colonies have more anisotropy even in this hemisphere. Uh, so I showed you this video, a video of the real feeding flows. From those real feeding flows, we can extract information about the stresslets for real colonies. Uh, and so we're measuring in two dimensions, and the stresslet is a three-dimensional object. It has three eigenvalues. So we can, never, we, we can never get all three dimensions of the stresslet, but we can extract two pieces of information about the stresslet. And so it's natural to subtract, to extract, uh, E.g., the sum of the eigenvalues or their product. We can get that much information from looking at two dimensional videos.
2: Sorry, I thought the sum was zero because it's traceless.
0: So, sorry, I, I was very vague. Uh, the sum of the project. The, the project you project the, the stresslet stress onto two no, dimensions no, 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 and no, no, then sorry. you create the sum of the Thank eigenvalues. You. Uh, and similarly, the product of those two eigenvalues that you can get from the two-dimensional well. flow. And it turns out that our simulated colonies that have you know, as much anisotropy as we, we could put in them, uh, have significantly smaller eigenvalues. Their stresslets are much, much, less, uh, much smaller. So here's a histogram of the relative numbers of colonies with, with these eigenvalue numbers. And here are some real data from real uh, colonies And we see that the real data in the real colonies, the eigenvalues are much, much larger. The flows are much, much stronger than we can predict using this kind of cell placement. And and so uh, a hypothesis that Mimi and I came up with just yesterday, and I don't know if it's plausible, but I wanted to bring it up because there are people here who are experts in in the physics and the math and the biology of morphogenesis, is that it's uh, one type of anisotropy that does produce large eigenvalues, that does produce large feeding flows, is if the colony has a weight. And so empirically, we can create this just by excluding cells from the equator of the colony. And I have no idea if there's any physical way or to justify this. But if we create that kind of defect, uh, then the feeding fluxes are much larger. We can increase the, We can get the right feeding flux, feeding flux per cell, which uh, suggests that there's some cooperative advantage from feeding together. Uh, and it, for precisely the same reason that two cells that are head to head or bum to bum feed much better than a single cell. You have this, this polar flow here and here, so you have large, a large but anisotropic uh, flow field. Okay, so I wanted to tell you another. Maybe if I. You have to tell me if I have to stop. That's, that's fine. Uh, But I want to popularize this system because, although I'm a mathematician, I do experiments, and I do experiments in this system, and I I just love it so much. And I feel that very, very few people know about this system. Uh, So... The the thing that I want to talk about in the last part of my talk, and I'll try and keep it it as brief as possible, uh, is about another kind of multicellularity, a much more sophisticated form of multicellularity that yet is very, very different from the multicellularity of animals and plants, and that's fungal multicellularity. So multicellularity is a word that we're all happy with. Chimerism, you might be less happy with, uh, depending on your your background in biology, but you may remember from from your background in Greek literature what a chimera is. It's a sort of fantastic fusion of animals. So, uh, you know, here's a sort of chimera from Greek mythology. It's a lion, it's a uh, goat, I think, and uh, some kind of snake or dragon. Uh, so these sort of fusions of of animals inspired uh, the the uh, the minds of the ancients. Uh, But it's also a word that has a great deal of meaning in a biological context. And it's a a lifestyle that's extraordinarily common among the fungi. Uh, So this this video shows you both uh, what chimerism is and also how we simulate it. So a fungal colony is a syncytion. It consists of a network of uh, tubes or hyphae. And in that network of tubes of hyphae is a sort of shared cytoplasm. And within that cytoplasm, there are millions or thousands or even billions of nuclei. And we can create chimera uh, in this column, uh, in such a uh, by uh, la- differentially labeling nuclei, these nuclei. So some of our nuclei bear a green label, a GFP-tagged nuclear protein. And some of them bear a red label. And uh, they they're genetically identical. Before yes, they're <coughs> identical except at the single locus where we inserted the, the label. Okay. You could imagine, and, and so, we'll, I mean, clearly clearly this is sort of a lab con- contrivance, but if you go into nature, what you find is uh, that colonies will have genetically different elements. They have, so you'll have morphs, for example. If you isolate individual nuclei from a wild growing colony, they'll grow up into completely different individuals. And the so, differently do they have
3: different genomes? Or are they different? Populations, species, strains.
0: So, so we, we know that they can be morphologically very different. The number of sequence strains is not really large enough for, for people to say, "Oh, this is the amount of genetic difference." We, we, uh, its generally thought that they're from the same species. Like chimera in nature consists of nuclei from the same species. Uh, you know, they might be mutants of the same lineage, or they might be near relatives that somehow ex- uh, exchanged. We also know by looking retrospectively that chimera are formed between genetically very divergent uh, individuals. And the way we know this is because there are, there are clear signatures of lateral gene transfer between, very, between strains that are too uh, dis- genetically dissimilar to being able to sexually recombine. And so we know that there's another recombination cycle, a mitotic recombination cycle, where you have uh, vegetative fusion, two individuals fuse and in their nuclei. fuse. We don't know how common.
3: Okay, But just to understand how you're using the word chimerism here, you're talking about uh, chimeric fungi in the same way that my body is a chimera. If you took out my liver cell and my ovarian cell, they would grow and have very different morphologies in a dish. But they're more or less genetically identical, and they cooperate in some spatial way. This is the way in which you're thinking about Chimera
0: here? Uh, I would say that we're using a very neutral uh, definition. In, sorry, we're using very neutral genetic differences. We're just looking at these two different labels. So the nuclei are identical in every other respect. But we could at least experimentally do the same experiment with significant fitness differences, completely different gene expression profiles. One could, have, uh, could produce an antibiotic, for example, but the other one could not produce Okay. And we could assay the interactions in that case. But okay.
3: you're not talking about that
0: right now. I'm not talking about that right now. Because, because I see the world through the lens of a fluid dynamicist, uh, I, 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 my, my imagination for asking biology questions is very, very limited. And, and the questions that I have been asking are about flow. And so if you look at uh, this movie of the nuclei moving, uh, of you know, a time lapse movie that comes from this colony, you see that the nuclei are very dynamic, they're moving around a lot. They're, they're being shuffled around, and I have better movies than this one. So, so the
2: nuclei are themselves dividing. So there's there's nuclear division, division, as well as flow. And then are the hypha uh, also uh, extending themselves? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So where does the flow Three come? Things from things going on. Please.
0: Oh, many more things. Right. right. But, uh, uh, okay. okay. So where does the flow come from? And and so first of all, this is. Uh, we're really just scratching the surface of a question that's fascinated fungal biologists for a long time. So in 1946, Guido Pontecorvo, Mont- who was one of the fathers of microbial genetics, argued that if we want to understand how fungi grow, we have to develop a population genetic theory for what the nuclei are doing, how they're interacting, how they're mutating you know, whether there's ecology between them, competition between nuclei. We, again, our, our imagination is very limited, so all we, we are attempting to do right now is understand the dispersal aspect of this ecology, how the nuclei move past each other and how they interact uh, through transport. Okay, and so to answer David's question, I have so many nice movies, and I could go on forever, but I don't, you know, I don't want to tire you, so, so I'll keep this to like 10, 10 more minutes, is that okay? Will people get desperate? Okay, so 10 minutes. 10 minutes on why fungi and this form of fungal chimerism is fascinating. So where does the flow come from? Question. What was I'm not going to do it in 10 minutes. Question. What was the time, ca- the time scale? of the- uh, So the, the speed of the flows, I couldn't tell you what the frame rate in that movie is, I'm afraid, but the speed of the flows varies between 0.1 microns a second, which is the speed of growth, and two, to 200 microns a second, which is extraordinarily fast for organelles to be shuffled around.
2: It should be Greg's call, but people have spoken for an hour and a half on occasion. Okay.
0: But I mean, maybe they had more interesting things to say. Go That's for it. The... People leave bigger. Go for it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it. Okay,
0: well. <laughs> I'll go over two hours for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. And I won't be remotely offended if you leave. I mean, you can claim a bowel problem or something like that if you have to, but I'm I'm not going to mind. So so I just want to show you some movies. And so where does the flow come from? Where are these flow speeds? uh, How do they originate? Well, for that, we have to understand how the colony grows. Uh, and so the colony is, forms this network of tubes, these hyphae and then if you follow these tubes with time so this is a time lapse movie so you're seeing uh, about 7 hours of both sped up to run in, in about 20 seconds you see that the tubes extend and invade the, this is a block of agar that we're using uh, and, they form, and they also form a network and so where does the flow come from? Well, each of these tubes, each of these tips is extending at its end. Its, its diameter tends not to vary during the, the um, growth of the colony, but it, its tip does extend. And as the tip of the tube extends, as the tip of the extends, free space is continually being generated at this tip. And in order to keep this free space populated with nuclei, there has to be a flow of nuclei from the interior of the colony, where the nuclei are being generated by division, uh, toward the tip. And as we go deeper and deeper into the colony, we see that these flows form this like, river-like structure, like bigger uh, branches or bigger rivers uh, branching out into many small streams. And the more tips you feed downstream, the bigger the flux and the But I guess I, it doesn't have to be a
2: flow, right? You could just do it by nuclear division. Oh. So why? So uh, is there flow inevitable? I see it flowing, of course. Mm-hmm. Is it inevitable?
0: Or? Uh, So I think it's probably associated with the speed of growth. So the speed of growth in this uh, colony is about 0.1 microns a second. So you need, I think, 200 nuclei to feed each tip just by division, provided they were to divide uh, at the same rate. And it's not necessarily clear that you would want, uh, so 200 nuclei, you 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 have to add to go 200 nuclei deep for each tip that you feed. And so that will get you somewhere into the colony. But it's not clear that, you know, that's, you know, whether there's anything interesting about that. You know, maybe, it's,
2: maybe it's the th- thicker hyphae are, are producing, overproducing nuclei, which then go to the tip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So so we think that there's, there's more adaptation to the flows than just keeping the tips fed.
3: What causes what? If you stop division, does the hyphae get longer? Uh,
0: yes, I think that you can use... Uh, there's some mic- microtubule disrupting uh, antibiotic, and you can knock that out. And what happens is you start to see big spaces where there are no nuclei. And then the nuclei somehow know that the space, once uh, you've uh, so this has, stuff hasn't been done in big colonies like New Austria, but it has been done in Ashbia, which you know, is a very lovely system to work with because it's so similar to, to Saccharomyces. Uh, and so what, what uh, people do is they stop division, they let the colony grow for a little
3: while. So the hyphae do grow in the axis of the of Yeah, the hyphae do big grow. Or, uh-huh.
0: yeah, yeah, and there's big space. And then the nuclei start to divide. Uh, and they somehow regulate their division to keep the cytoplasmic ratio constant. So they the divide until the colony is filled up in. And, the, and the space <laughs> is all at the end. Uh-huh. Are there loops in the network? Yes, the network is very, very reticulated and, and connected. And as a, so How happens, does that happen? Do they like, fuse when they meet two hyphae that are growing? Or? Two hyphae can fuse, absolutely. They can't do that in Aspergillus, but they can do that in Nostra. They fuse very happily. Do you remember correctly from your movie that when you had the, the red
2: chimeric mixing with the green, that an entire hyphae could be uh, taken over? There could be fixation of red in one hyphae? In green well, this, this is the
0: question, so uh, I think, I don't know if I have a slide, I, I, stole, I stole an argument for one of your papers, so you don't have to uh, listen to this, so, <laughs> so there's a question, which is, you know, so you have 200 nuclei that are feeding a tip, and the nuclei have some kind of genetic diversity, some of them are red and some of them are green, and suppose they divide at random, well this is, this is a, a system that, uh, so I just saw this from one of David's papers. Uh, So as they divide, random fluctuations in the division will tend to predispose this this initially very diverse population of nuclei to skew towards either all red or all green. And it turns out that the timescales in which they skew, if this was the only thing going on, a fixed population uh, dividing at random, would push the, the colony, the diversity of the colony, down and down and down. And does that really happen? Well, if you look at some fungus, fungi as they grow, uh, you see sectoring, which is a manifestation of this. So, as the colony is growing out, starting from a central uh, uh, proto colony, as it's growing out radially, sectors of the mycelium, whole hyphae and groups of hyphae, start to be dominated by only one of the possible uh, nucleotypes that were uh, in the initially chimeric colony. So, this is also chimerism. Here you have. Some significant morphological differences between these nuclei and these nuclei. I don't know how genetically divergent they are. So what's stopping them from sectoring? What's keeping everyone together? And everyone, you know, what, what's making this community of nuclei cohesive and making them function as a single organism? I mean, do they even function as a single organism? Or, or do all fungi sector in this way? Uh, so we do an experiment where we show that neurospore doesn't sector. I'm not going to talk about the experiment. It's just suffice for you to know that neurospore does not sector on any of the distances that we can go right out under. When you, when you say sector, you mean in the sense of the,
2: that beautiful 1944 paper which had the, uh, the macroscopic sector, not within a Haifa. What we, what we saw on the previous slide was a whole mm-hmm. dense map of
0: Haifa. So, we isolate individual hypha, right. and we look at the genetic diversity within individual hypha. Which is, and, and so, there is no skew in that. The proportions of the nuclei remain balanced and well mixed, even down to the scale of individual hypha. Ah, yes. Ah. So, is there an adaptation that, that helps the fungus do this? Uh, well, we, we, uh, I, I said that there was flow. Well, it turns out that this, this flow is also dispersive. If you introduce new nuclei into a colony, so we introduce green-labeled nuclei into an unlabeled colony. Then those green-labeled nuclei disperse all the way through the tips of the colony. And this is where the, the, the dispersal gets really very beautiful. So I showed you these flows that were just river-like. Uh, so that's, that's what you see in the first few millimeters behind the tips. But as the colony matures, its geometry becomes more and more complicated. There's more and more, and more uh, interconnection and loop-forming and uh, bridging. And the flows become correspondingly much, much more complicated. And so here we're going to see a movie, and the time rate factor of this movie is it's sped up by a factor of two. You're gonna see a movie of the nuclei flowing in the colony. So you can see, I'm afraid you can't see it very well, but you can see sort of multi-directional flows, crisscrossing highways of nuclei. People are following different paths at different speeds. And uh, you can look at the, my computer if you can't see it very well right now. Uh, and so you know, I, I live in LA, and uh, you know, when I look at this, I see traffic flow in a city. I mean, I see traffic flow in a city where the traffic actually flows, which is you know, not LA. But uh, there's some, some kind of regulation of, uh, you know, there's, there's something creating this flow. And, uh, and the average flow direction is radial relative to the macroscopic? It's operation. always towards the tips, but you have multi-directionality. You have backwards flow and forwards flow. But if you said, what's the average flow at any point, it's, it's just towards And flow. these movies are chimeric? We just can't see the, the. You can't see any chimeric. This is not chimeric. No. This is just flow. We're just looking at flow. You would see the same thing in a chimeric colony, but you would get to see what's associated with this. And, and so, branch
4: branches in which you don't see flow are, are, are blocked? They're not, not going? Uh, so it could be. It seems that the flow doesn't go through all the branches.
0: Yeah, so, so I have some arguments, which I am probably not going to dwell on too much, about the complexity, what's regulating the flow. The, the, you know, the, the, there is growth, and the, the, so the, there's some differential growth in the colony, there are fusions that create the flow, and there's also, it can sort of block off hyphen to stop the flow in this hyphen using uh, septal pores. So we can stop the flow in IP, and it seems to be regulating that. I mean, all we can do is to sort of talk about movies and talk about the effect of this on mixing, which is, you know, as far as we've gotten in climbing the ladder of understanding this, this system. So, so there's regulation, absolutely.
2: Sorry, for the case where you have flow in the branch, mm-hmm.
4: you said the populations remain or the two species remain well mixed. And is it the same even if you have no flow in the branch? Because, uh, I mean, what I'm worried is that if the flow is much faster than the doubling time then uh, anyways, in any
0: given branch, always the colonies are going to be swept away. So you won't see fixations. happening. I mean, but the flow in the tips is never that fast, because the flow in the tip has to follow. So the, I showed you a movie of the tips. And, and so it's certainly the case that, that uh, I would not expect that there to be sort of, uh, genetic segregation in a flow, in a high, in deep in the interior of the colony where you have very rapid flow. The question is where are those nuclei being delivered? And they're all being delivered to different tips. So that's the regulation, and that's the, sort of the end product of this mixing. So just like traffic flow in a city, uh, like every, the nuclei have cup foods, they have their favorite cups. I don't know if you can see them there, but there's uh, it's very, very rapid flow in some of the high feet. Is that
2: Bernoulli's principle that the narrow ones go fast and the fat ones go not slow? Not in general,
0: but uh, if you see fast flow in a high like this, that's a narrow high it's probably being fed by a large high But it's not like you can generate, you can predict flow speed based on, uh, simply on conductivity. Also, like flow in a city, there are even traffic jams. So the nuclei pile up. What makes up the wall of the tubes? So there's a hyphal wall, and there's also a cell wall. Cell wall? So if there's a cell membrane, and there's a hyphal wall. So you have a lipid membrane, and then you have a wall that's made of chitin and, and other things that I, I don't know enough about biochemistry to tell you about.
3: Is there syncytial, right? So there are no cell membranes within
0: the hyphae? Uh, there are septa within the hyphae. The septa are usually open. Uh, But yeah, so so within any hypo compartment, you have thousands of nuclei, and the hypo compartments are usually kept well connected.
3: I'm wondering, so you're sure that these are really traffic jams
0: and not some kind of weird nuclear fusion event? Uh, oh, what's causing these things? So, so it turns out, and this is just the, the mathematician geek in me, that if you measure the velocities uh, in uh, the tubes of this hyphae and you say, what is the relationship between the conductivity, the, the rate of flow, uh, and the number of nuclei, the more nuclei they are, the faster the flow goes. So it's actually opposite from a normal traffic jam, and then you see something called a bogus shock because of that. So, so, fast, so a few nuclei that initially clump together go faster than a single individual nuclei. And then they meet all of the nuclei who are ahead of them. And they sweep them up. And then they go faster and faster. And so the, these these traffic jams are really the, the, it's like anti-congestion in the system. I wish LA was more like a fungal if, colony. If, if you've got cell membranes and I mean the walls of the tubes are cells, mm-hmm. is that correct? The walls of the tubes are cells. It's difficult to define a cell. Uh, If you're thinking about a fungus, Uh, I I prefer the word sensation. So you you have, I mean, this. When when I say the walls, I mean this thing here. So this this this, the walls of the tube are you know a cell wall. There's a membrane and then there's the hyphal wall, which just has all of this. But
3: they're not made of cells. It's not like your gut. Oh, I see. It's a tube that is itself made of cells. This is not that.
0: Yeah, it's better to think of this as a single cell. This whole thing, this whole colony. Many many nuclei. Can't I have flagella? do you have flagella? Lining the walls of this?
3: No, because the wall is just made of whatever, concrete, styrofoam, doesn't matter. It's just made of whatever the thing is that they, that these guys secrete. But flagellas
0: stick into membranes just fine. Right? So, fungi do not have flagella? Yeah. Okay, well, actually, some fungi do have flagella, and I could tell a different story. Uh, and I, but I will not tell it now because I want to think. Okay, but it. you know for a fact there are no flagella. There are no flagella. No, not in the. There are fungi with, but it's a completely different phylum. huh okay. Fungi. So,
4: so you you have motors going both ways, right? In some of the, some of the. Branches. I have nuclei moving in both directions,
0: no, but the, the nuclei are moving on what? Moving on motor? Moving it's cytoplasmic flow. It's bulk cytoplasmic flow. So if you're if you've learned about yeast, your instinct is that the stuff that moves, uh, nuclei are motors, because that's that's what happens in yeast. But in a system like this, there are actually pressure gradients that drive the flow, and we can show that because we can manipulate the pressure gradients. So the complexity of the flow is actually created simply by the geometry of the colony, how the pipes are stuck together, and in the various pressures that you infer from that geometry.
2: Now, there's a very interesting dead-end uh, hypha in the center of your picture there. And that, that hyphal tip knows that it should, doesn't need to, it's not worth growing. because Somehow, it senses that it shouldn't be branching or continuing to grow because oh. it's so dense.
0: Uh, It it probably does. Uh, We we know that the tips, the hyphal tips communicate with each other, that they know where they are relative to each other, because we know two hyphal tips will spontaneously reorient and grow together. We have absolutely no idea how they do that, what what is going on. We know that they have an apical complex called the Spitzenkörper, which somehow directs the direction of growth, but we don't know what that is. I mean, from this
3: image, certainly we can't know, right? You said that there are septa inside the hyphae. Maybe they have a backup in the septa production, or who no, knows? Okay. Right. Interesting. There's no net
2: flow in that,
3: right? Dead end, right? right?
2: But but if that dead end were near the edge of the colony, it would be much more likely to be extending its tip. Yeah.
0: And it somehow senses that. that it, so I think the, or something. There, there's a lot of interesting yeah. questions about what directs the growth. Uh, the only thing that we have been able to interrogate is the kinematics of the mixing. So once you have a network, or or rather how you should put your tubes together in order to create mixing flows. Uh, So if you
4: were to stain for filaments within those branches, you
0: wouldn't see all the filaments like actin or So It it has a cytoskeleton. Uh, So so, it's a crowded environment. Because
4: because I'm I'm wondering if all all this flow is just... uh,
0: just hydrodynamic flow, or is it also driven by uh, by, uh, so models, I, by molecular motors? So molecular motors are important. We know that there are whole suites of them, and, and fungi are, are actually the, usually the model systems for studying and for discovering new molecular motors, like the Salado Midas has, I think 30, there's a guy here, Steinberg, who's found like 30 different types of molecular motor for doing different organelles and a lot of different uh, different uh, elements of the cytoskeleton. Uh, what what I can tell you is that we can manipulate the sugar the pressures in this colony because it's just sugar that controls sugar pressure. And so, by adding sugar, we can create opposing flows. And those opposing flows are kinematically identical to these flows. I mean, but reversed. So, but it is possible that what we're doing by adding sugar is reorienting the microtubule skeleton and somehow redirecting all of the motors. But it seems. More, more simple and transparent that we're just changing the target pressure, which is, you know, what we set out to do. But you're right; there could be motors involved. And like these guys you see bouncing around, yeah, that's probably motors. Uh, but the faster flows we see, we, we believe are sort of, uh, driven by target pressure. So, um, is the network always in a single plane, or how does it? Uh, so, so uh, the, it will invade, if you remember that time lapse movie I showed you from the beginning, you have the hyphal network and it's invading the block of ARGA. So, it's very, very three dimensional. But then, you know, we, we are sort of simple experimentalists, and so if we want to see what's going on, we can only image the, the, the ARGA surface. And then we have but various... So are some of these like uh, displaced from one yeah, another like, the direction? Or... Uh, so, so in this particular colony, what you're seeing is something that's been growing, grown on a very, very, uh, it's, it's very young. So it hasn't had much time to penetrate into the agar. And the agar is quite stiff. So we use a, like a 3% agar. And that just prolongs the amount of time that it grows two-dimensional for. But that, that's really an imaging. It's to make in imaging more facile. It's, It's not really reflective of how the fungus would really like to grow, fortunately.
2: But the hyphal diameter is small compared to the uh, agar meshwork. So it just just goes through the holes in the agar. The agar is a a three-dimensional polymer gel. Okay. And so
0: what's going on? How does it invade the agar? Yeah. So... Oh, dear. this is this is i I I don't actually know what the mesh size for agar is. It's like 70, it's like nanometers. It
2: depends on 100. the it depends on the concentration and how soupy it is. Oh, okay. So hard agar has some a uh, very relatively small meshwork, and I just wondered if the size so would it, allow
0: they, your hypha to thread through it. Hey, I so when I think of the mesh size of these kinds of agars, in as much as I can ever remember reading anything about. Where people have done measurements, it's normally on the order of tens or maybe hundred nanometers, and uh, these are microns, aren't yeah, our, our hypo diameters are mm-hmm. on the order of twenty microns. They, they have, I mean, they have a whole secretion apparatus. So, so they they may just cut their way they through. They can digest stuff. Just cut their way through. That's what I suspect. Okay. I don't know for sure. It they could be that the pushing well, agar out of the way,
3: do the flows, and growth dynamics change
0: when you change the concentration of agar. If you change the concentration of agar. Uh, I haven't done anything systematic. They grow slower if you increase the stiffness of the agar. Uh, we, we haven't really experimented much with Osmo. There's a, there's a really interesting question, which is, I mean, you have to regulate metabolism back here. And I think maybe this is what you're, maybe this is me putting words into your mouth. But you have to regulate metabolism in the interior of the colony to decide how fast something over here is going to grow. Because your, your pressure gradient is dictated by toga pressure. And that's dictated by metabolism, so how much, you know, what, what sugars are present and how you're using them and at what rates. And then there's growth that's going on over here, so there's this monstrous problem of coordination, which I think doing that kind of basic experiment really helps us to understand. But I have to admit, we've done essentially nothing. Uh, you know, we're really, I mean, like I said, this is an understudied problem, and we benefit from being people working in an understudied field, but as a result, we you know nothing. So, but there are so many interesting questions. If you were to carve tunnels
4: through, through the agar, would it follow these tunnels, or would
0: you could go somewhere else? So, so, there's a there's an interesting guy who, who uh, Mimi knows called Dan Nicolaou who is Dan Nicolaou senior, who grows fungi in microfluidic mazes, uh, and he, it seems like they have a strategy for exploring the maze. But I mean, when you look at the fungi he grows, they look really, really sick. Like, they they look like they're dying, so it's sort of unclear. I mean, like it, it's a lovely experiment to propose from a physical point of view. What's their foraging strategy? How do they navigate around each other? But it's hard to actually do the experiment, so I don't have a good answer.
2: Is it possible to set up a sucrose gradient and see what happens when you have a spatially varying turbo pressure?
0: So, so we can certainly, we, we do do that. We do a, an experiment where we regulate, we, where we just add, uh, we shock the colony colonies with sugar. But I mean, we're only able to sustain our gradients on the order of minutes. I see. And, and the colony can also restore its flow before our gradient has even died out. It just seems to want to grow in one direction. We haven't been very systematic. And what's the nuclear division time? in uh, as much as it's been measured it hasn't been measured in a dense colony but for a, uh, for a younger colony it's between 18 I've seen anything between 60 and 100 millions. thank you okay so where am I going to go with this uh, I think I, I should be done. But uh, so our hypothesis and I wanted to present this to this community who knows so much about multicellularity is that uh, I, I already said what the hypothesis is the fungus is adapted to create complex flows the complex flows are adapted for mixing this is the, the where, where our hypothesis takes us the, the fungus is, is trying to create this sort of complex multidirectional flow in order to keep its genetically different elements as well mixed as, as possible to keep this, this community as, as genetically diverse as it can be and to prevent sections. So so we can, we can measure this. I'm going to skip this movie because I don't think it's uh, super important. But there are other... There are other um, oh, and so, so there are ways we can test this hypothesis. And, and at this point, I think I've exhausted your patience, so I won't talk about what we do. But we can look at colonies. So we can knock out the ability of the colony to uh, fuse. And so we create colonies that are tree-like. They don't have any fusion. They're just branching. And once you get to a branching network, you can understand everything about the network. You can optimize the... The, the hierarchy of branches in the network to say is this, is this network mixing, is it supposed to mix is it optimal for mixing and that's not a crazy experiment because we know that fungi grow in nature in some sort of very dense and geometrically heter- heterogeneous environments like between the cell walls of, of, of something they're trying to invade and something they're trying to kill and that will itself imposes constraints on, on fusion and, and, uh, and branching so it's natural to assume that fusion and branching are separately regulated I mean, that's a strong hypothesis. And we can show that branching is optimal in the colony. We can show that optimal branching is not not enough. Uh, So the way that we do that is we knock out the ability of the colony to to fuse. We can do models. I don't care about this enough to to waste your time in showing it to you. But then we can also understand other adaptations, other parts of the fungal life cycle. And this is, I promise, the last thing I say. We can understand other parts of the fungal life cycle uh, in terms of, there are two movies, Uh, parts of the fungal life cycle in terms of its need to keep things well mixed. And and so, a hugely important thing for fungi, and perhaps how how we most commonly encounter them, is through their spores. So, the the colony, once it's exhausted the substrate, creates this dense cloud of spores around the substrate. And so, that's what you see when your orange goes molding. This green fuss here is the spores of the colony. The mycelium is just transparent and it's within the orange and unobjectionable. But the spores are what the fungus is going to use to try and disperse its progeny, uh, and to try and disperse through new habitat. Uh, and it's super important that there should be mixing in the sports. I mean, we, we would want the, the the intergenerational transport of nuclei, or the intergenerational passage of genes, to reflect the diversity within the colony. It's just, just a statement. It may or may not be true. But if we think that mixing is important within the... the uh, the branches of the, within the spores, then we have to find another adaptation the fungus would have to ensure mixing uh, in the spores. Because there's no network to make the spores. This is another piece of biological information. The spores grow on branching trees. So and I told you the trees aren't, aren't able to mix nuclei. But these are not hypha, this is another? It's a, it this is a hypho, it's called an aerial hypho. It grows point. out, it's a specialized kind yeah. of hypho. It grows out of the, the substrate. And then it buds into spores. This is a sexual part of his life it's cycle? It's asexual. A, it's
2: still asexual.
0: It's asexual. So also what things. you're saying is just the spores, the nuclei within the colony being packaged up into Do You're not seeing any recombination. And each package has only one nucleus or multiple nuclei? Uh In this, it depends on, on what you're looking at. In the glomeromycetes, they can have hundreds of nuclei. Okay. Uh, in Neurospora, it's, it's usually one to four. So, so, uh, I'm a fluid dynamicist, so it's interesting to me to see whether there might be other fluid dynamics going on to ensure this mixing. Uh, And it turns out that you can mix within a tube, not between tubes, not depending on, on connections between tubes, but you can mix within a tube using an effect called Taylor dispersion that I'm not going to describe, but it's a fluid dynamical effect that depends on velocity differences across a tube. But it turns out for Taylor dispersion to be important the flow within the conidiophore, that's the aerial hyphae that feeds the spores, has to be 200 microns a second, which is extraordinarily fast for organelles to be shuffled around. Uh, and so I was just curious whether this existed. And I have a fantastic postdoc, Patrick Hickey, who took uh, almost all of the movies that I show you, all of the good ones, certainly. Uh, and he, he actually measured the flow speed into these conidiophores, and partly because of this Bernoulli effect the flow speed is actually 200 microns a second. I don't know if this video is going to play. But, uh, so you see, they just, just whiz off. And so, you know, is there anything interesting to this, apart from we see very, very fast flow? Well, in order to make a flow that's 200 microns a second, it turns out that this canidium has to feed 2,000 separate tips. I mean, the canidophore has to flow into 2,000 separate uh, apices because the speed of growth of each apex is, is uh, each hypha is, is you know, only a tenth of on a second. And so in feeding 2,000 apices, you have to bear the weight of 2,000 separate hyphae. And that's actually kind of disastrous for the fungus. Uh, in order to maintain its mixing, if you believe me that you know, this is an adaptation for mixing, its canidophores have to be under the incredible weight of 2,000 separate hyphae. And that means as they grow, and this is another time that's moving, the kidney are growing and the spores are supposed to be dispersed into the air, but the kidney are constantly collapsing under the weight they have to bear. So, so it's, it's dispersal is limited by its need to make sure that there's, there's genetic richness in, in the things that it's trying to disperse.
3: Sorry, how do we know that they're collapsing under their own weight instead of dying by other
0: mechanisms? It, it could be a desiccation thing. It's, uh, so, so
2: It's directional. They, 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 it seems like they're falling down.
0: The hyphae don't look desiccated, is the only thing I can say? I mean, it could be that there, there's some other kind of senescence. cells right. can die in lots of different ways. So it's absolutely true that we, we cannot convincingly I, I don't think that I can convince you or even be, be fully certain that, that this is collapse under weight. You can do a force balance on these things and you can show that the, the length at which they reach is a buckling exceeds a buckling length. That's the best I can do. I'm sort of really over-enthusiastic, perhaps, about this question. We do know that if you look at these hyphae that have collapsed, they're not dead. Uh, a dead hypha is very transparent, because it's, a, it's, a, it's actually it's the opposite of transparent. It's very uh, opaque, because it's highly vacuolated. And collapsed, collapsed canidophores are not vacuolated. It could be that there's something else that just turns the turgor pressure off in them. But given that they're still viable, at least you know, by this metric, that they're not clearly dead, uh, they, I mean it, it seems to me and th- this is actually a, a problem in, in that we're assuming that they're supposed to disperse the spores into the air I mean it's just an assumption that it's sort of all fungal biologists share, uh, but I don't think there's any verification of that, we're assuming that, that this falling over of the force is bad for them but I don't know if it's true I just, just misplosive I might of often be going through a 3D substrate hmm? in nature they might be going through a 3D substrate well, i mean in a kind of, you know, say through a leaf litter or something. Well, the canidium are only produced, so, so the canidium aren't invasive tissues. They're, they're only produced when the fungus is exposed to air. They, they have, uh, it won't canidiate if it's, uh, so the way that it knows it's exposed to air is if it's too wet, it has, and the genes for this are well understood, it has genes that turn off conidiation. So, so it has to be uh, above something that's wet. So it, it's, it's true that it could be trying to invade a dry surface, but I, the general opinion is that can, the reason why they're called aerial hypo is that they grow into the air. But it, it's a, you know, there is a tissue of hypothesis and assumption in this. I probably should finish. But I, can I, one question, and then I let you all go? But, uh, I don't know if it's my call to make. You can go.
3: Just say, just go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you just pin down the, the experiment
1: so you reverse a G, are the Aifa are
0: the uh, much longer? Turn upside down. <laughs> this, is, this is a really good question. I have an undergraduate working on this right now. I don't think it occurred to us to check for geotropism. We have a theory uh, about what's regulating the canidia fall length. Uh, and so, you know, we're fluid So our theories come from, from air, from, from, you know, the physics of, of the uh, sort of flow around it. So we believe that the spores are supposed to be dispersed uh, into the air. Uh, and so our hypothesis and I'm just telling you very very hypothetical things that we haven't tested our hypothesis is that it's trying to grow across the boundary layer there's a thin layer of still air which is a few millimeters in thickness uh, that surrounds the the fungus and it needs to grow across that to bridge across that still air to reach dispersive air flows beyond and the question is how does it know how thick that layer of still air is And so the way that we think it measures that is by measuring the rate of evaporation at the tips of the canidia force, because the faster the wind flow, the faster the rate of evaporation. And and so our indirect evidence for this is if you change the humidity, you change the canidia length. So if you grow it in a very humid environment, as we're growing it in here, it makes longer canidia force. And we think that's because it doesn't think it's reached the air yet, because the rate of evaporation is still so low in the tips. Very hypothetical. But excellent question. Maybe you have better ideas. And G also we can Okay, I'm really undone now. I thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you.